I'd like for you to turn your Bibles today to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at the slow but steady decline in Solomon's life and asking ourselves some incredibly serious questions. Why did this happen? How did this happen? And what could have been done to prevent this from happening? I don't know about you, but we come across on occasion people who are what we might call fast starters in the whole realm of grace. They began so well and they were fast out of the blocks. But somewhere along the way, they, I don't know, they got detoured. They slowed their pace. They lost their focus. And the result was that somewhere along the way, they didn't finish the way it appeared they would when they first began. And that's the story of Solomon. And what we're going to do is to read the first verses here. And we're going to allow them to sink deeply into our hearts. And we're going to be asking ourselves those personal questions and the tough questions of how can I prevent this from occurring in my own life? What can I do as a parent to keep erosion from occurring in my children's lives? And what are the issues involved here biblically so that we can stay abreast of what's occurring in this changing culture in which we live? So now, here's this king, great king, gifted king. But beginning in verse 1, we read these words. The king Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters. Daughter. Moabites, and Ammonites, and Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. But nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. So on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did say the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel would appear to him twice. Now, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. 
So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, this is dripping in insight, isn't it? And what we're going to have to do is to extract that insight and apply it to our own personal situation, our national situation, our global situation, ask the tough questions, and see how we can provide biblical answers as we look to God now in prayer. And our fathers, we're coming before you. What we want to do as people who worship the exclusive God through the exclusive means, Jesus Christ, we're praying that you would speak to our hearts. In any of these three morning services, and again tonight, if there are those coming, that for whatever reason we're fast starters, but somewhere along the way became detoured, put them back on track, we pray. Forever and ever you are God. You are eternal, you are infinite, you are unchangeable, you are God. And we praise you for the fact that you have provided the way when you owed us no way. That's of grace. And so, Father, with that in mind, what we're asking now is that you will challenge us and speak to us and pour your wisdom and your truth inside of us. Warm our hearts. Engage our minds. As again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the Grand Canyon have to do with King Solomon? Take a look at the scene that's appearing on the screen at this point. Look at the height. Look at the depth. Look at the distance between the two. A geologist writes, the most powerful force to have an impact on the Grand Canyon is erosion. Primarily by water and ice and second by wind. Water seems to have had the most basic impact because our planet has a lot of it. It's always on the move. Many people can't understand how water can have such a profound impact considering that the canyon is basically located in a desert. But notice the Colorado River snaking through the canyon, you see. 
The soil in the Grand Canyon, he writes, is baked by the sun. It tends to become very hard and can't absorb water when, when the rains come. And when it does rain, he adds, the water tends to come down in torrents, which only adds to the problem. The plants that grow in the Grand Canyon tend to have very shallow root systems so that they can grab as much water as possible on those rare occasions when, in fact, it does rain. Unfortunately, these root systems do nothing to deter erosion by holding the soil in place. So now you've got a lot of water, no place for it to go, but down to the Colorado River, you see. And the result is a frequently a flash flood roaring down a side canyon that can move boulders the size of automobiles. Now, fortunately, nobody builds a house in the Grand Canyon, so that's not a problem. But there are a few automobiles and vans and buses sitting there at the bottom of the canyon. The mass that moves down a side canyon during a flash flood, he adds, is more like a fast-flowing concrete than water. It's dangerous. And for those that are hiking, traveling, tour guides, note, you should always be well-informed of weather conditions when you're hiking through side canyons in the Great Grand Canyon, quote, unquote. So what does that have to do with Solomon? The answer, erosion. Erosion is gradual. It's not sudden. It's incremental. It's a process. Not a one-time event. Is the general norm. So here's Solomon now before our very eyes, and we're looking at the gradualness, the incrementalism of the erosion that is taking place over the course of the days of his life leading to this point in time. <coughs> so what I want to do with you now as we're looking at these verses is to be able to draw three significant needs that relate to our own personal experience so that we can prevent the Grand Canyons within our own souls from occurring. And the first is found in verse 1 down through verse 8, and we're going to phrase it like this, number one. To counter spiritual erosion, we need to follow the gracious commands from God. And they're gracious. If you look very carefully, for example, at the Ten Commandments, it's rooted in grace. After God had spoken of, by grace he had led the Israelites out of Egypt, you see. So the commands follow grace. They don't precede grace. So what I want to do now with you is we're going to begin to track Solomon's decline. The incremental, gradual erosion that's occurring within his own life experience and ask, what can we learn from this example here? So you pick it up in verse 1. 
And you don't get very far, do you? Because we're reading King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Right away, what you spot is, number one, the king was not to multiply unto himself many wives according to the edict of God in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But even more interestingly here, you and I are informed that the first of his wives was Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon, have you pondered the story of Abraham and Hagar? Have you examined the history and the principles of tension between Israel and Egypt that emerged from that story? When you see, Sarah couldn't conceive in the time period that Abraham and Sarah had a lot for her. And so they thought they would help out God. You ever try to help out God? Don't try to help out God. Because they attempted to do God's will their way. And so they brought a substitute strategy to try to fulfill God's plan. It failed. And out of that becomes the starting point for a tremendous tension occurring within the line and against the line of Abraham's seed and offspring through Isaac, Jacob, onwards. Solomon, have you considered what Moses went through in the wilderness experiences as he looked back, leading those people out of the land of Egypt? They wanted to return, didn't they? Yet Moses was an instrument used by God where plagues were inflicted not merely upon Egypt, but upon the false gods of Egypt. Each of the plagues was directed against a particular false god to show the Egyptians that Yahweh alone is God and their false gods are impotent. It was really an evangelistic event. Solomon, you're wise. You're a thinker. You know history. You know that a political alliance, although it's very strategic, means you're going to create a sense of dependence upon Egypt once again for the Israelite people. Small decisions have big consequences, don't they? Personal decisions have public consequences, don't they? But you see, that's not all. He continued through the years, incrementally, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. Some of these religions, in fact, of the various people groups now described, advocated child sacrifice. This is being brought into the land of Israel through political treaties that are being established in the White House of Israel itself. And so you and I look at what's happening here, and we begin to see that there is an incremental, gradual breakdown. They were from nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely, first of five times in this passage in the Hebrew, turn your hearts after their gods. 
Nevertheless, you and I are told, Solomon held fast to them in love. Mark that phrase, in love. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, our introduction to Solomon, you and I are informed that Solomon loved Yahweh, Israel's God. Bookended. We begin with Solomon loving Yahweh. We end with Solomon loving those who've imported false gods into the land of Israel. Gradually, incrementally, but most assuredly, Solomon has moved from an exclusive God to an inclusive God allowing for a pantheon of gods within Israel now to be worshipped. If you were like me in high school, you studied, you studied the Greek pantheon, Greek mythology, the Roman pantheon, Roman mythology. What God is saying here, Israel, look at what's happening. You're just simply following the culture of the Greek pantheon, Roman pantheons, and so on, depending upon where you're at historically. And Solomon is bringing this right into their experience politically. And it's because he held fast to them at the end of verse 2 in love. And immediately your mind is racing forward, isn't it, to that, that point in Revelation chapter 2 where John is now speaking to the church in Ephesus. And what does he say? You have forgotten, you have forsaken your first love. Somehow Solomon has moved from 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, to chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. And there has been a movement from the exclusive relationship to Yahweh God to this inclusive approach where it's God plus all these other gods, you see, and erosions occurring. And there is this Grand Canyon that's beginning to be nurtured in the land of Israel. So you underline that word love, and you don't stop there, because in verse 3, you and I are told he had 700 wives of royal birth. It does not merely say he had 700 wives. You and I aren't supposed to miss what comes next, of royal birth. Why is this so significant? Because in that time period, if you did not go to war to conquer other nations, then you entered into political alliances with other nations, and usually part of the treaty was the exchange of family members. Now, if one of those wives reports back to the Ammonites or the Egyptians or whatever and says, Solomon is now once again arguing for an exclusive God. I no longer have the opportunity to worship our God of Egypt or our God of the Ammonites here. The treaty would be nullified and most likely that nation would go to war against Israel. And Solomon has been too busy building up his temple and his palace and everything else to ponder the need to safeguard the Israelite borders, you see. In other words, he has made the people vulnerable. When you and I allow for spiritual erosion to gradually, incrementally wear down our souls, 
we make other people vulnerable. And we've got to be able to picture the end result of a Grand Canyon and how it relates to our own personal experience, you see. So in verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his, mock this now, his heart after other gods. Notice it does not say Solomon turned his heart after other gods. I find that where erosion is occurring, the individual becomes increasingly spiritually passive. Resistance is wearing down. Erosion intensifies. It's not that Solomon is turning his heart after other gods. His wives are turning his heart after other gods. He's become passive spiritually, not proactive biblically. And you and I are informed that he was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. Notice how many times the word heart appears here. And remember that story that Solomon would be forced to remember, found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, you see. And so now what we see here is something happening from the inside out, occurring. And God wants to address the issue. Ravi Zacharias does. He was at Trinity a few years before I was, so our paths didn't cross. He's a little older. But he writes, on one occasion, I stood by the side of the road in India, watching the golden statue of a god being transported from one temple to another. Thousands clamored to give an offering and receive a blessing. The priests accompanying the god had incense and ash in their hands, and generally, generously distributed the goodwill of the deity upon any fruit or piece of clothing placed upon them. And it was an extraordinary sight, Zacharias writes. Rich, poor, young, old stretched their hands up as their chariot went by at a snail's pace. So I asked a woman who had just received her blessing if this God actually existed or if he was just an expression of some inner hunger. She looked very hesitant and then said, quote, if you think in your heart that he exists, then he exists. Unquote. Talk about virtual reality. What if you believe he does not exist, I asked. Then he doesn't exist. She softly responded. In his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, he then adds, that possibly summarizes the major personages to whom divinity is ascribed today. Some will attempt to prove their beliefs. Others just quietly carry them in their hearts, creating gods whom they then try to appease. What false gods might be lurking in your heart that you're trying to appease? See how passive he's got? This was a strong man. 
He's grown old, but he hasn't grown up. So as Solomon in verse 4 grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been, more like Saul than like David. And David now is sandwiched between these two kinds of kings who have divided hearts. Divided hearts result in divided relationships. Divided hearts, you had very conflicted, conflicted decision-making. Inconsistency reigns. So in verse 5, he followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord. Mark this again. Completely. As David, his father, had done. Now you say, well, I know that David sinned. And you're right, David sinned. But what he is saying here is that David was a first and second commandment king. And Solomon is allowing erosion to take place from the get-go with regard to the commands. And so what we now find in verse 7 is that you are moving from the, the initial stage where love has been displaced to the internal stage where it has now been brought into the heart five times mentioned to what I call the inevitable stage in verse 7 and 8. Don't miss it. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Notice he didn't position it in Jerusalem. So he still had some heart there for God. He positioned it outside of Jerusalem so he can keep this at arm's length, but at the same time still have access. In other words, what we see here is that he is moving slowly but surely from permissive to promotion, from passive to proactive. Didn't happen at once. There's a gradualness to erosion, isn't there? Generally speaking. Solomon built a high place for them. He did evil. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods, but he did the building as they did the worshiping. And I thought about that when I came across a story of a farmer heading to the farmer's market to sell, among other things, cottage cheese and apple butter made on his farm. And he carried these two large tubs from which he ladled the, cot the cottage cheese or apple butter into small containers, you see, to, to give to his customers. But one day, as he was heading to the market, he discovered he had forgotten one of the two ladles. So he felt he had no choice but to use his one ladle for both products. Before long, he couldn't tell which was which. And I think of Solomon. And I think of people I've known. And I think of this nation. And I think of world events. And I pondered the significance 
that what we have to do is to reestablish the idea of the exclusive God. And how do you establish, once again, the idea of the exclusive God in this highly inclusive culture? We are very, very interested evangelistically on the exclusive way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. What's fascinating to me now, and the globalization of the United States of America, not only do we have to argue for the exclusive way, we also have to argue now for the exclusive God, who established the exclusive way. Because if you don't have an exclusive God who argued for the exclusive way, if you've got an inclusive God, you no longer have a basis for an exclusive way. It all breaks down. The believer has got to be consistent in a very inconsistent time period in which we live. And we've got to be able to help our, our children and our, and our friends and the people in our adult Bible fellowships. We've got to interact on this subject. Think about it in our care groups. Dialogue about this and the ways in which we go day in, day out through our experience. But we've got to understand that it's the exclusive God that's established the exclusive way. For as the Israelites would understand from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 7 in their Shema, it's not merely enough to argue that there's only one God. But as you note in your outline or your insert, it's in effect, Yahweh alone is that one God. Once we reestablish He is the one God, then we can say, and He's established the one way. And that's what I see as one of the critical issues of the Allah. And that's why then we go to this passage of Scripture that now appears on the screen that Solomon would have been responsible for mastering because the king, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, was responsible for writing down, copying the law, and, and meditating upon it consistently. And here God had said, do not intermarry with them, speaking of these people groups that Solomon, in fact, has in, intermarried with. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. And he warns in advance. And he emphasizes this. And it's a statement of grace. Now once you and I have established that fact, and we've realized now we've got these various tubs in the United States of America, and maybe some are carrying various tubs within their own personal life, but they're using one ladle. And everything is now starting to look the same. And the distinctions are beginning to break down. We've got to go back to the critical needs, starting with number one, the counter-spiritual erosion, the Grand Canyon experience. We need to follow the gracious commands from God. As Ravi Zacharias would want to say to that woman on the street in India. Now we're ready for the second critical need and it moves from, from verse 9 down through verse 13. 
to counter spiritual erosion, secondly, we need to heed the gracious warnings from God. You say, well, Gary, where do you get that? In verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon. Why? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Now, notice that this is not capricious, arbitrary anger. It is an anger, in fact, rooted in grace. God was gracious to warn them well in advance not to go this way. But who of all people chooses to go this way? The king who will not base his policies upon biblical principles, but rather upon personal preferences, and now enters into these alliances. And as a result, he has made countless people vulnerable. The worship of Moloch, the sacrifice of children, brought and poured it right into that land. So now the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Again now, we do some internal analysis. Heart check time. What's the condition of my heart? Is there a, a steady, incremental erosion that is occurring that has got to be addressed? So you and I are reminded of God's grace. In verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him not once, but twice. Now, generally speaking, I believe that repetition is always better the second time. Don't you? But he didn't get it. Repetition is God's means of getting our attention. God appeared to Solomon not once, but twice. Before you get angry at the fact that God is angry, begin to process the fact that God in his grace and God in his love appeared, and he did not have to appear, but he provided Solomon at when Solomon prayed with wisdom, and at the time of the dedication of the temple, Solomon appeared, saw that God appeared again to him. But despite the experiences invested, they are now experiences wasted. And there's heart trouble. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so what we read? The Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, not your action, your attitude, because we work from the inside out, you see. Attitude shapes action. And have not kept my covenant with my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now, I want you to see that what is coupled with the anger of the Lord is the mercy of the Lord. It goes hand in hand. Verse 12. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, 
and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Notice the restrictions he has placed now upon what he's about to do. First restriction, not now, but later. Second restriction, not all, but some. Not all the tribes, but some. Third restriction, not forever. I'm going to have somebody coming from that particular tribe of Judah who's going to take care of this and pull all this thing back together again. Do you see mercy in the midst of this statement? As the exclusive God finds a way to get a hold of the mindset, the thinking of the inclusive Solomon, he needs to be able to process the fact that there is grace in the warning. So now, here's the next question you've got to pose personally. Has God been delivering warning signals to your heart? You've left your first love. Your heart is beginning incrementally to experience erosion by, by what you're taking in, sensually or whatever. You are allowing for certain things to occur, even though you're trying to keep them compartmentalized at arm's distance. They're there at your convenience. Slowly, that heart which was devoted to the exclusive is now subtly and yet certainly moving towards the inclusive in the whole realm of God and God alone and Jesus as the only means to God. Have you spotted grace in the morning? The mercy of God to even provide warnings. It was a sign, believe it or not, outside of a convent. Absolutely no trespassing, the sign reads. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. It was signed, the Sisters of Mercy. See what God's saying here? There's mercy here in His law. And the law was rooted in God's grace. And so having been saved by grace, we see the value of keeping the moral law and the exclusive understanding of God and God alone being sovereign. The great Shema teachings of Deuteronomy chapter, if you look carefully at chapter 6 verse 4 down through verse 7, Yahweh alone is that one God, you see. And David could have said this to Solomon. Look what appears on the screen. This is the promise that God delivered to David. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Speaking of Solomon, not you, David. You feel so let down because you're not the one. In my grace, I'm allowing it to be built, but it's going to be by your son. And I'll establish the throne of this kingdom forever. And now you're thinking about that statement above Jesus' head on that cross. King of the Jews. 
three days later, he gives you reason to believe it's forever. I'll be his father, he'll be my son, and when he does wrong, back to Solomon now, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, and the offspring of Solomon through the generations who are royalty. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And now there's David. And he's hearing this, and he's got Saul before him and Solomon after him. And what do Saul and Solomon have in common besides Asset, the first of their names? Divided hearts. And when you allow for a divided heart before long, the evil one gets the entire heart if it's not countered along the way. To counter spiritual erosion, we need, second of all, then to heed the gracious warnings from God, which leads us now to this third critical need. To counter spiritual erosion, we need to accept the gracious discipline from God. And now what God is going to do is he's going to use three significant tools to discipline Solomon. To get Solomon's attention. The first is found in verse 14. The Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary. Hadad. Hadad. The Edomite. Edom? Where did the Edomites come from? Go back to the story of prior times. The Edomites are from the line of Esau. Do you remember the tension between Jacob and Esau in the womb of their mother? Now once again we see it flaring up. And now Israel is going to have to pay a price for that conflict the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad, the Edomite. And you know what I think is the height of irony in this story about Hadad, the Edomite? You know how Pharaoh gave his daughter to Solomon as a wife? Who was the sister-in-law to Solomon's most resolute enemy, Hadad? Hadad's married into the family of Solomon's wife, Pharaoh's daughter. Do you see how when the exclusive God principle breaks down, the conflict continues to expand. What I'm saying in the United States, what I'm saying in the colleges, what I'm saying in the culture is we've got to understand that it takes an exclusive God to be able to argue for the exclusive way. If you and I argue that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, we better hold to the exclusive God and everything that he holds to in relationship to how we should live for him. But if that's not enough, look at verse 23. God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Razon of Damascus. And what country is Damascus in today? Syria. And what's happening in Syria today? And have you considered the relationship between Iran and Syria today? 
And if that's not enough, a third adversary is raised up, beginning here in verse 26. Jeroboam, son of Naboth, he's raised up, rebels against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite. And lo and behold, you and I find that that's the major tribe to the north and will be the leaders in dividing the north from the south and the whole civil war that takes place within the land. What I'm basically saying is that when you get away from the exclusive God, there are external and internal elements that converge together as the disciplinary tool that God uses to get his people to realize, I love you. Because as Solomon himself wrote, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. So now you look at that and you say, well, Gary, is there any hope in all of this? Is there any hope? I know I violated some commands. Ran through some warning signs. Resisted the discipline. Is there any hope? I want you to notice three passages that appear in rapid-fire succession on the screen. Look at verse 13. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David. Where did Jesus come from? My servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem. Where did Jesus go to die? Which I've chosen. Check out verse 36. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. This is exactly what he offered when Jesus became the light of the world. And furthermore, look at verse 39. I'll humble David's descendants because of this but not forever. Because Jesus is still part of the plan, you see. And now we've pulled it all together. Because very simply, the Grand Canyon just does not have to be part of your own personal experience. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, by God's grace, follow the commands. By God's grace, heed the warnings. By God's grace, accept the discipline. And he will bless, even with a little, for the sake of his glory. As I pray, I'll ask the worship team to come forward to lead us in a closing song. And Father, we praise you. We thank you. We understand now that in this increasingly inclusive culture in which we live, it's becoming increasingly challenging to talk about the way without understanding that there is the, not many gods, but the God. So equip us now with these verses, the insights that we're extracting to apply truth to life, personally, regionally, nationally. We want to offer you praise for the way we live, 
and it will be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.